0: That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. Learn about the Fair Kitchens Code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com.
2: Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview an extraordinary woman who I admire, who's inspired me over time. In this case, today, there's someone who's inspired me literally for decades. My guest today is Jessica B. Harris. She's a linguist, journalist, cookbook author, professor, food historian, and one of the world's foremost experts on the foods of the African diaspora. She recently added curator to her list of titles. She is the lead curator for the Mofat exhibit, African American Making the Nation's Table. What inspired that show?
3: Well, I think in brief compass, it's simply time. In fact, it's past time. But it's something that as a museum of food and drink, which is you know, MoFed's full name, there probably was no more important exhibit that they could have done.
2: Can you describe the exhibit to me?
3: Well, I mean, the idea is, or the underpinning backbone, is simply the fact that African Americans have been at the Matrix Of American food, since there was American food pretty much, because of the nature of enslavement, Um, as I've said, and this is not necessarily the script for the exhibit, but, you know, African Americans basically, because of enslavement, were the agricultural workers. They were the farm workers. They were the people who processed the food. They cooked it. They served it. They cleared the table. And they emptied the chamber pots. Now, you don't get any more involved in the food chain than that. And when we stop looking at that face-to-face and you know close-up and personal and going, hmm, oh, okay, then you don't see that. And I'm not saying that everyone... In the colonies or the nascent country or the 19th century country had enslaved people. But the people that were there were the bedrock and the foundation of this and this food and what we eat. And we can talk about British food and its import, we can talk about Spanish food, we can talk about Native American foods. All of those foods are a part of it. But the thread, the kind of thrumming heartbeat of it all, is the African American hand.
2: And let's talk about some of those dishes that came from Africa and became part of the American table. Well, it's not always that simple.
3: But the idea is that you're talking a combination of ingredients. Okra people sort of say, oh, yeah, sure, I guess that was probably African. People, you know, spend eight gazillion dollars on Starbucks. Forget coffee. Uh, Ethiopia's in Africa. Coffee is native to the Ethiopian highlands, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, nothing more American than Coca-Cola. Cola was a part of the original formula. Cola, native to the African continent. Africa has its own rice, uh, oriza glabirima, as opposed to the Orisa sativa that people are more familiar with. But that knowledge, that botanical know-how, a lot of that came from the African continent, from the rice-growing zones of that continent. You can go on, you can talk about watermelon. Watermelon probably originated in, not sure, but possibly in the Namibian Desert down there. There are melons that show up like that, and watermelons show up in Egyptian tomb paintings and things like that. So you get all of those. The field peas, I love telling Texans that the Longhorn cattle has DNA from Fulani cattle. Everybody thought it was Criollo mixed with something else, but there's also some DNA from Fulani cattle in it. And a lot of the Fulani, the Fula, that group of people who were herdsmen were some of the original cowmen in the country. Um, Post-Civil War, one in four cowboys was African-American. We don't know this stuff. We have no idea. We have, you know, wandered ignorant in the wilderness for a long time, and hopefully the MoFAD exhibit will shed light on some of it. I'm not saying that African Americans created American food ex nihilo and no one else was there, but those hands stirred a lot of pots, and those pots came up with a lot of things.
2: One of the parts of the exhibit is the ebony test kitchen. Is that a test kitchen that you were in before?
3: It got dismantled yes, and sent before- to MoFe. <laughs> exactly. Well, yes, I know Charlotte Draper, but I am deeply, deeply friendly with and used to stay with her when I was in Chicago with Charlotte Lyons, who was the ebony food editor for 25 years. So I've spent time in that kitchen, yeah, yeah. What was it
2: like? Can you describe it? I saw a picture of it at the Mofad Gala, and it struck me as like a very specific moment in time.
3: Absolutely. It is, I guess, the psychedelic era. Uh, It is vivid orange with swirls, and it was part of the ebony building, which was built by John Johnson, and which was an extraordinary building in Chicago um, because it was sort of the sumum of his aspirationalism. Uh, And I don't necessarily trust my memory, but I remember being in Chicago on several occasions and being in the Ebony building and finding people who were probably Southerners, more than likely not necessarily urban Southerners, and this would have been probably in the 70s, maybe early 80s, who were dressed up and coming to the Ebony building to just look at it because it was a symbol of all that he had attained. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like it or not, Ebony was on most folks' coffee table
2: And so you've created a menu for a museum in D.C. What was that experience like?
3: You mean the Smithsonian?
2: Yeah, Smithsonian. Yeah,
3: (laughs) the Smithsonian Museum of African American History and Culture, which was actually, interestingly enough, the last museum to be built on the mall. And I got asked, I'm not sure what the year was, probably I'm thinking 2011, 2012, somewhere along in there, To make a presentation, they had a scholars' committee. And the scholars' committee originally was helmed by John Hope Franklin, the late, extraordinary African-American historian. And so I went and made the presentation. It was well-received. And then several months thereafter, I got an email from Lonnie Bunch who was the founding director of the museum, who is now the head of the entire Smithsonian, which I think is extraordinary and wonderful. But he said, you know, we we loved your presentation. We appreciate your approach. We would like very much for you to work with us on conceptualizing our cafeteria space. And so that's what I did. I sort of went to my axe and dug down into my head and my books and came up with some ideas. The idea was to use the cafeteria as a teaching space to teach about African American food as going beyond the things that people knew. Although ironically, many of the things that people knew are the things that are the best sellers,
2: <laughs> the fried chicken
3: and the collard greens. But there are other aspects of African-American food, and they are showcased in the cafeteria.
2: So what were some of the dishes that were not the expected ones, that weren't the um, the best-selling fried chicken collars, that were part of the education um, and the food experience?
3: Well, a cowboy and- stew, a son-of-a-gun stew, a variant on son-of-a-gun stew. While I suggested recipes, I didn't develop the mm-hmm. recipes, so there's a nuance there.
2: And what is that stew?
3: Uh, It is a traditional cowboy stew. Um, A lot of the um, trail cooks were African-American. Son-of-a-gun stew, sometimes called rather rudely son-of-a-bitch stew, is a stew that was prepared um, when a nursing calf died.
0: Hmm.
3: And so it uses, traditionally... um, I think it's called the marrow gut. It's a part of the nursing calf's milk processing. And by by extent it becomes a very rich beef, almost, I can't say veal, but but beef stew. And so that's kind of how the menu gets then interpreted in another kind of way. Um, There is, well there's certainly gumbo, the whole idea of the coastal south that you know, Port City South, um, which can extend any numbers of ways, so that you even find a port city like Philadelphia, or arguably even a port city like New York, that may have connections. Um, Philadelphia's pepper pot used to be sold on the street by African American, well, women of West Indian descent, actually, and called Philadelphia gumbo. So people don't necessarily know that. I had
2: never heard that before. Um, I'm just wondering, if someone was going to have sort of the five-minute version, the distillation of what people need to understand about the foods of the African diaspora, what would that be?
3: First of all, Africa is a continent. It has regional foods. It has regional specificities. And within those regions, it breaks down perhaps to an even greater extent than, than it does here. We think of Europe. We never think of Europe as Europe. We think of England. We think of France and all of the regions in France. We think of Italy and all the regions in Italy and so on and so forth. Africa's continent too, same things. But then you take what happens with the transatlantic slave trade. And so you get those people who are stolen, dehumanized in the method of transport and brought to another hemisphere and then placed at the bottom of the food chain and that's hemispheric we tend to think that the united states is its own thing but it's the hemisphere and more people were taken to brazil than the rest of the hemisphere combined so that they're staggering figures the number of enslaved people who were brought to the united states is actually fairly minimal when you look at the total numbers. Now, what happened in the United States was that because of the methods and conditions of enslavement, people, I can't say thrived because that would just be the wrong word, but survived in different ways. And so it didn't become that voracious maw that it became in Brazil, in the Caribbean, in Peru, in other places. That being said, different people from different parts of the continent were often brought to specific spots. So you can find residual tastes, not specific tastes, of Senegal in New Orleans, where the original enslaved people were from Senegambia and the Bight of Benin. You can find some tastes of Sierra Leone, Liberia, those areas in Charleston. So you get all of those things. They become very much clearer outside of the United States. You have dishes that retain their Yoruba names in um, Brazil, in Salvador de Bahia de Todos Santos. You find that the classic street food is something called an akarajé. Akarajé is simply the Nigerian bean fritter, which is called an akara. Akarajé is an elision of akarajé and akara to eat. So you get all of those different things throughout the continent. What then happens is people meet and mix with each other, so you get the techniques. You get the pretty much hemispheric propensity for frying in deep oil. You know, the Dutch do it with donuts too. I'm not saying it's only African. But when you find the fritters that you find in Brazil, in the Caribbean, in New Orleans, in the American South, you see lines, you see things that are are moving, and you see connections. And those connections continue. And even now in the 21st century, with new patterns of migration. We find that things are repeating itself. So the Jolof rice that is actually the Senegalese Chebujin, because Chebujen was the rice of the Jolof empire, hence when it moved to Ghana and Nigeria, it took the name of the empire as opposed to the name it had. But when that then comes back and meets up perhaps in Charleston, with the Charleston red rice that was a derivative, then you begin to see all of these circles within circles within circles reconnect.
2: Five minutes? That was astonishing. Okay. We're going to take a quick break. Stay with us, and we'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Fair Kitchens. The food service industry faces a challenge. More people are eating out, yet restaurants are losing talent. Why is this? Research by Fair Kitchens reveals a serious well-being issue within professional kitchens. 74% of chefs are sleep-deprived to the point of exhaustion, 63% of chefs feel depressed, and more than half feel pushed to the breaking point. This can't be ignored. Fair Kitchens is a movement based on the belief that a positive kitchen culture makes for a healthier business. By taking the pledge to be a fair kitchen, they'll provide you with free information, tools, and resources to help you take action towards making your restaurant more stable, productive, and happy, which positively affects the guest experience. It's time to act now. Learn about the Fair Kitchens Code and join the movement at fairkitchens.com. Welcome
2: back. This is Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. From the beginning, you've been interested in bringing people to the table, and it's part of the title of the exhibit of the MOFAD show. And I was interested when you talked about how bringing people, particularly to the Southern table, could serve as a locus for reconciliation. I wanted to hear what that meant to you.
3: Well, I think there are a lot of things at play. And we talk about communality, but my favorite food word is commensality. It's the sharing and the coming together and the sharing of things around a table and over food. (coughs) And I think that that's part of what we're talking about. That's part of certainly what we need at this point in time. And it's something that I think is a unique quality of the table. I think it's something that can happen at the table probably more than it can happen just about any other place. And why is that? Well, I think several things. I think, um, and I like round tables, arguably oval tables, but tables with no heads at the table. So when you're talking about that kind of a table, everybody comes at an equal point. The late Maya Angelou had an oval table in her house in Harlem, And the wonderful thing about it was that there was no leader, per se. She was at the table, and on several of the occasions when I was at the table, there were other notables of her stature. But if you were at that table, you were at that table, and I think that's an important thing. I think it is not without import that peace treaties are signed at tables. Lots of negotiations go on at tables. Sometimes they're polarized tables and people sit facing off, but they are tables. And I think that 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 gives the table its own special
2: place. And in thinking about the food ways that you have spent so much of your career sharing, do you feel what that food is at the table is important?
3: What I would say is that the, the question at that point becomes how are people at the table, or in fact, are people at the table? Um, somewhere in the stack of books I yet want to write is an autobiography that's based on my family, and its essential working title is Strangers at the Feast. If you go to Monticello, You see how the dining room has been arranged so that the people who prepared and served the food are made invisible. That's not the table we were talking about earlier. So the table traditionally, historically, in much of the United States was an exclusionary table, which is a very different table.
2: That reminds me of the curry that Maya Angelou made, which I think in her rendition was 12.
3: I don't remember how many boys, boys but it was a multiple boy <laughs> lots curry. Lots of boys yeah. and
2: curry. Um, could you talk about that dish and what that means to you?
3: Well, I had the, the great good fortune to know, as I called her, Maya, as the world knows her, Dr. Angelou, for more than 40 years. And so one of the things about that was that as I increasingly got into food and writing about it and working with it, we started bonding on different levels about food and food ways. But the meal that you're referencing actually happened, gosh, when I was probably in my 20s which is a lot of years ago. And I was visiting with her with a friend of mine, which, who is how I knew her, a gentleman named Sam Clemens Floyd Third, and she cooked a meal. And the meal that she decided to cook was a curry. And it was, in a very interesting sense, dinner theater, because the curry and the preparation of the curry itself was as much a part of the meal as the meal. And as she was cooking, as she was preparing the meal, she kept a running commentary so that it was about the curry, about where she had learned the curry, about what the boys meant. And a 12-boy curry is, it's almost more like a Reichstaffel oh. than it, it was like a curry in the sense that each of the boys was a different condiment that the house boys would have brought to the table, hence the 12-boy curry or the 10-boy curry so that would have had 12 condiments or 10 condiments and so on and so forth so that was an education I have had the great good fortune to have been formed slash educated slash in the presence of a lot of amazing people at table and certainly that was an early one and a very special one.
2: Uh, In your memoir you wrote about Club 81 and a lot of Incredible people were at the table. What was that like? I mean, the people who were your friends. Well, let's let's
3: qualify that a little bit. They were Sam's friends. I was Sam's lady friend for a while. And they tolerated me. I mean, Sam was 15 years older than I was. And they were his contemporaries and in some cases older than, than he was. So that, that I was the kid. So while I talk about these friendships, I was really, as I've, I've phrased it before, the tail and the last part of the tale of the kite of the friendships that those people had. I was not calling up Baldwin and going, hi, Jimmy, what are we doing today? <laughs> you know, that was not the nature of it. But as I also recount in the book, my last encounter with with Toni Morrison was, in fact, at Maya Angelou's memorial. And, you know, we were cordial, but I tried to say, you know, hello, and she didn't remember me. And I can well understand why she didn't remember me. I was a blip on the screen, but the wonderful thing about it was her words to me were, Was I kind? And that's an extraordinary indicator of who she was. And in fact, and indeed, she was not only kind, she was extraordinary.
2: When you were 15 years younger, how did that feel? I mean, were you intimidated? Was it just a lot of fun? Um, It wasn't always fun. It was at times
3: intimidating, at times exhilarating, at times deeply painful at times, delightful and glorious. It was the full spectrum of emotions. Um, but it, it ends well, but not well. And I would do it again in a heartbeat. But it was, it was an interesting journey.
2: During that journey, did you find your passion for what has become so much of your life's work as a food historian? Because at the time, you weren't a food historian.
3: Well, I mean, my... my Training and background are in French and theater. My doctoral dissertation is on the French-speaking theater of Senegal. I have been told I was the first black woman to vote for the Tony Awards. I was the theater critic for the Amsterdam News in the 70s when The Wiz and Chorus Line and all of that great Broadway was happening. I went and started to write for Essence magazine and and began to write about travel and then began to write about travel and food. I got into the travel because I had been traveling and I was the first non-UN person to go to the United Nations International School. In the doing of the um, Essence editorial calendar and all of those kinds of things, the travel then led me into food. So I was the first woman travel editor of Essence. But to write about travel and then include food with it was probably an innovation in a lot of ways. And it wasn't about going to the fancy restaurants. It was more a cultural look at food. It was um, looking at the preparation of the meal, looking at the history of the meal, in some cases looking at the connections of the meal, and things like that.
2: I'm excited to be brought back into the memories of the places when you first found them, and the meals that you shared, and what's memorable when you look back. Well, I mean,
3: I think the thing is that I've been very, very fortunate to have been in extraordinary spots at in some ways their high point. I was in Paris at a point where Paris was still transitioning out of what it had been to what it has become. I mean, I lived with a family in France in the 16e arrondissement, which is the really hoo hoo snooty one. And they all went to the appropriate schools and, you know, the grand stuff. And it was an extraordinary apartment. And I had a wonderful, you know, bedroom where I could step out on a little balcony and look at the Bois de Boulogne because it was on the Avenue Bijoux. And that doesn't quite exist anymore. Certainly not for me. And ironically, not for the members of the family either. I went to brenmar and I was, again, at a transitional point. My first three years, it was a very sort of, for want of a better term, patrician, a very WASP, very Seven Sisters place. And we were served at table by people who were referred to as maids and porters. Um, It was very much life on the plantation.
2: How did you feel about that Um, at school at that time or looking back? Looking back
3: is very different from at that time. And at that time, it was unusual and peculiar. But looking back, it was horrifying. But um, I was one of six black women in my graduating class. Now, they were small classes, But it was a minuscule percentage. Interestingly, we all still kind of talk to each other. We are all still more or less in touch. We reach out from time to time. And after our 50th reunion, at which point, I think five of the six of us showed up, or certainly four of the six of us showed up, which meant it was a place that had formed us, whether we liked it or not, however we may have felt subsequently. Did you
2: go to Senegal um, as part of your education?
3: Well, I went first to um, to the Université de Nancy in Nancy, France, um, got a licence, Letre, came back, got a master's from Queen's College, and then spent time basically taking courses and finally sort of decided what I wanted to do my dissertation on. And the dissertation was probably the thing that got me to West Africa. So that my first trip to West Africa was in 1972. 72 was a juncture point in West Africa, because I believe that Roots, the book was published in 76 or 77. And post Roots, there was a, for want of a better term, almost tidal wave of African Americans heading to the continent. There was even a a charter group called International Weekends that had back-to-back charters. A plane would leave Saturday. It would pick up the people from the week before and so on and so forth. But those charters were so reasonable, they were like $299, as I recall, that people went and stayed and saw and were transformed and in turn also transformed Dakar. So the fact of having been there in 72 was, again, a very different Dakar.
2: So I'm curious about the role of memory. You're, you're a historian and I was interested in something that Verna Grosvenor once said to you which is she had you go through a picture and remember every single person in the picture because she said you're going to tell the story. How do you feel about being a custodian of memory and historian of foodways? Um often
3: discomforted, but I I do see history in another way. I see it happening, and I see people forgetting, which I think is even more to the point. I see people not knowing, and I think the not knowing, or the not understanding, or the not processing, or the not getting how very, how very much things have changed. Even in my lifetime, the changes in my lifetime have been monumental. But the changes in, for example, my mother's lifetime were extraordinary. I mean, my mother was born in 1913. There was a czar on the throne. Russia. By the time she died in 2000, she was using a computer, you know, and had a cell phone. And that's just escalated.
2: What do you think the most important things to remember are? Like what has been forgotten that should be raised?
3: I think, particularly for African Americans, younger people live in a world with Beyonce, younger people live in a world with Obama. Both President Obama and First Lady, former First Lady Michelle, that's a very different world from growing up in the 1950s. And we're talking 60 years ago. We're not talking light years. We're talking within the lifespans and memories of a fair number of people, myself among them. It's a very different way of being in the world. It's a very different way of looking at the world. It's a very different way of understanding the world. And it is... I would imagine for them, difficult to understand what that absence must have meant in terms of people and their focus and how they got through the day and from point A to point B and just how heroic people like Angela Davis Mm -hmm. and people like, you know, there's a whole list and a litany Uh, were to do what they did without that kind of, I don't necessarily like the term role model, but Mm -hmm. without that kind of visual expression or tangible expression of access.
2: Right. I've talked to a number of people on the podcast who say it's very hard for them, was hard for them to figure out if they could do a job because they'd never seen someone who looked like them do that job And it took more confidence. It took more time. It took more effort to get where they were going, not having sort of a North Star in that way.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: For example, Valerie Lomas, I don't know if you know her. She's a wonderful baker, and she was on The Great American Baking Show. Her season didn't run because one of the judges was accused of sexual harassment. Valerie is African-American, and she had no role models, and then the show was shelved. So this opportunity that she saw to be, to use the word that neither one of us love, a role model for others was taken from her.
3: But it's it's not even that. It's more than that in multiple ways. Um, I mean, I, I don't know her, but The reason that one tends to go on those shows, in my estimation and in my understanding, is not so much to be a role model, but as to succeed, thereby perhaps becoming a role model, so that the question at that point becomes multiple. Her attempt for success, her attempt for recognition, her attempt for all of those things that then might have resulted in others seeing and knowing about her was shelved. And that is unfortunately the story of how many of us and how long and how all of that. We all have stories. And I'm not sure how old she is, but I would probably opine that I am at least if not twice her age, at least a third older than she is. But that then talks about other things. That talks about a lot of other things. I mean, we're looking at people who are getting awards. We're looking at people whose books are being, you know, rewarded. We're looking at people who are ascending to editorships and all sorts of things. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. But let's be clear about what happened before and who of us, because I'm not working in a vacuum, all of those people that paved the road, all of those people whose dreams, like Valerie's, may have been shelved. Just because you see success in a certain area doesn't necessarily mean that's even what the person wanted. That may not be what they wanted to begin with. They may have had or dreamed of success in a totally different area. That may not have happened at all. So you get all of those things and all of those layers. And Valerie, obviously, and I don't like talking about someone I don't know, but you found her. You knew her. So that the show didn't necessarily attain its objective, but somehow the objective was attained.
2: And she didn't have a role model. She had to work at it to figure out how to succeed, gain recognition, support for the work that she was doing. Um, and she did that in a way that is very of this moment, which is she had a blog and she found an audience. And that allowed me to find her and that allowed a show to find her, which is again, as we were talking about, very different from what the possibilities and opportunities were not so long ago.
3: But it's also indicative of the present time in that people, I guess they have all along, but they're, people make their own way out to the degree that ways out are available. So, I mean, there are any number of bloggers internationally now who are known, who are far better known than many people who may have taken a traditional route. You know, if you're a blogger and you've got that magic, whatever it is, 10,000 followers or 15, or God help us all, 1 million, (laughs) then you own the world in a way that somebody who may have published a book that sold 4,000 copies does not. So it's constantly changing. It's constantly morphing. It's constantly becoming something else. But the thing about That power of the blog, that power of I can just take this into my own hands and create something virtually ex nihilo is very much something that did not exist 50, 60, 40, arguably even 30 years ago.
2: For sure. So at the end of the show, uh, I always ask my guests for a woman to pay it forward, to give a shout out to. It could be an extraordinary woman in history who you feel more people need to know about or someone whose work you admire today.
3: I'm going to go with history simply because I think if I went with today, I'd make too many enemies and there are too many people whose work I admire. But I would say, um, well, first my mother because she's the one who stood me at the stove, or with whom I stood at the stove. She had better palate than I do. She had an extraordinary palate. When I was doing restaurant reviews for The Village Voice, she was my preferred eater because she could eat something and tell you what was in it and then probably recreate it. She was equally a trained dietitian, and so she knew more about the chemistry of food than I will ever know. And I guess I would say her because she was one of those people who did not get that chance that we talked about earlier because she was extraordinarily talented, really wanted to do this. Her instructor, she went to Pratt for dietetics, and I have framed on my kitchen wall a letter addressed to her instructor at Pratt. Her instructor thought she was quite good and had recommended her to the gas company. It was the point in time when people were going from wood-burning stoves or coal stoves to gas stoves. And the gas companies were hiring people to demonstrate how to cook with gas, and my mother's professor had recommended her for that. And the letter that is framed on my kitchen wall, right there with the book covers, says something to the effect of, Uh, We thank you for your recommendation, but we are not in the habit of hiring Negro girls, small n, for those jobs because we have no way of knowing which houses would be the Negro houses, and uh, so on and so forth. So uh, when we talk about what happened and what has happened, that's a point of reference. And there was no blogging. So she went on and did what she did and raised me with some very, very, very good meals. And I was the uh, in-house food historian for Sarah Moulton when she had a, a live show on the Food Network back in the day. And my mother came on once. And so my mother got to do what she was probably born to do because she was so extraordinary. And it was just wonderful to watch her do that.
2: Do you remember what she made by any chance?
3: Uh, I think she made a couple of things. I think she made biscuits. I'm actually not even sure what she made. I was just flabbergasted because she had advised me about some recipes. And we were working from my recipes and had the mise en place all done. And she started saying, oh, no, I don't want that. I want this. And no, no, I don't know why I said that. I need something else. And she was just totally and absolutely in her element. And it was one of my great delights to be able to see her do that.
2: Do you have a most memorable meal of your life to date?
3: Oh, well, there are multiple. I mean, I write about one that I had chez Garin in Paris with Georges Garin, who was a two-star Michelin chef. Uh, It was an over-the-top meal, you know, with a ragout de truff, truffle stew, and then a baron of lamb, not just a rack or a leg, but the whole double legs. You know, it was an amazing meal. But I think that the meal, and it's interesting because I just did an interview of Mashama Bailey for something, Mm -hmm. and asked pretty much the same question, but I asked, what would be the meal you would most like to have? And who would you have at the table? But I would have, I think, um, and this is the point at which I usually start to cry, I would give a body part for my mother's Thanksgiving dinner Mm. with my mother and father, just to be there.
2: It must live deeply in your memory. Oh, it does. It does. It's hard to find something more special than that. Well, with that, Jessica, I want to thank you so much for coming to to join me today on Speaking Broadly. I hope you've enjoyed listening and if you have please subscribe, rate, review. We love hearing from listeners so you can DM me on Instagram and I, I promise I'll get back to you. So enjoy your week and I'll be back again next week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Fairer, more delicious place and we couldn't do it without the support from listeners like you want to be part of the food world's most innovative community subscribe to the shows you like tell your friends and please join the hrn family by becoming a member just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. thanks for listening